It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest... Today, we get an insight into how life in Russia has shifted since the outbreak of invasion and discuss what Putin's next moves could be. Plus, we hear from Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis from the war in Ukraine. It's day 22, and today I'm joined by Natalia Vasilieva, The Telegraph's Russia correspondent, and Francis Dernley, our assistant comment editor. Let's start with you, Natalia. I wondered if you could give us an update on the devastating bombing of the theatre in Mariupol that we've seen all over our screens today. Yeah, that's right. The um, situation in Mariupol, as we know, is particularly fraught as it has been besieged for days and there's very little information coming out of it. As since uh, most of the journalists who were covering the story have left, there is very little or no signal or internet connection. The reports that we heard yesterday about the drummer theater bomb suggested that there could be hundreds of civilians uh, trapped underneath the theater in a bomb shelter. What we heard this morning is that apparently the bomb shelter has uh, been able to withstand the blast and rescuers are helping people out. Uh, We still don't have any details on the potential number of casualties, but uh, local officials who have been able to get in touch with the rescuers on the ground say that we might be in for some good news and that a major disaster has potentially been averted. Well, that is a stroke of good news. I saw reports that it was possible that the word children was written outside the theatre. Yes, exactly. Several uh, satellite companies have published recent photographs, satellite images that show the the word uh, children uh, written on both sides of the building. So it's, you know, it's quite visible from up ahead. But again, you know, we're, we're talking about an airstrike and we're talking about 
the Russian army sort of hitting a target based on coordinates. Whether they saw the words, what they thought about hitting that location when they saw those words written, it's, um, um, it's a really big, big question. But they were definitely visible from, from high up. Thanks, Natalia. Also yesterday, Zelensky, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, confronted the US Congress with a kind of personalised speech and harrowing video of footage from Ukraine. Can you tell us more about the, the, what happened here and the significance of this? Well, obviously, there's, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no lack of harrowing I- images coming out from Ukraine, especially in Mariupol, which is a major city um, in eastern Ukraine, which has been besieged. We have seen um, terrifying scenes from one of the hospitals where employees have had to store uh, bodies of, of the people killed and, and killed in shelling. They had nowhere to store them. The, the morgue was overflowing. And um, obviously, in recent days, we saw images of uh, mass graves in Mariupol as uh, it was impossible to bury people under constant shelling and um, and local residents essentially had to uh, dig out uh, mass graves in the middle of the city to bury, uh, to bury the victims. And Francis, I wondered if you wanted to come in on the political significance of not only Zelensky showing these kind of absolutely harrowing images right in front of the US Congress, but also the slight personalisation to the speech that he gave. Yes, thank you, Sophie. And one of the most striking things about this entire conflict has been Zelensky's leadership. I think that goes without saying. He has been uh, a a moving and uh, um, highly sophisticated communicator on on the global stage, and not only on the global stage, but of course to his own people. We've spoken before on on this podcast about uh, what may well have happened had it not been for Zelensky's strong leadership. And I think that um, the strength uh, of, of Ukrainian resistance would have been greatly diminished. But um, speaking to what happened yesterday and to to generally to to Zelensky's strategy, he's been very, very uh, sensitive to the national histories of those countries that he is addressing. So last week we had, of course, his um, appeal to the House of Commons, where he made a very, very explicit reference to Winston Churchill's speeches uh, during World War II, um, echoing, we shall fight them on the beaches. He he did his own version for for Ukraine. And yesterday he spoke to, uh, to the Congress in the US and was making references to uh, Pearl Harbor and to 9-11. In fact, on the latter, which obviously is a very emotional event in American history, he said that Ukrainians are experiencing the same thing every day. And, uh, quote, in your great history, you have pages that would allow you to understand the Ukrainian history. Understand us now. And then he ended with a quote from Martin Luther King, where he says, I have a dream. These words are known to each of you. Today, I can say I have a need. I need you to protect the sky. So once again, reiterating his appeal for a no-fly zone. So... Obviously, he's he's saying what these countries would like to hear. He's appealing to their desire to promote liberty around the world and, of course, to to continue their support of of providing weapons for for Ukraine. But if I could just, um, uh, before I finish, I think there's the equally interesting yesterday was his personalised speech to the German Bundestag, where he was much less 
<laughs> um, in praise of the support provided um, by by that country, as opposed to to the United States and to uh, to Great Britain. He was critical of the ties that, uh, that that Germany has had to Russia, particularly in relation to energy, gas, and uh, and the like. He says, "quote We've seen how ties your companies have with Russia, with a country that just uses you and other countries to finance this war." So very, very strong words and very critical of Germany, who, of course, um, at the beginning of this conflict, only offered to provide five thousand. Um, helmets to Ukraine. And it raises a very big question and a bigger question about the level of commitment um, of Germany's supposed U-turn with regard to its foreign policy. There has been speculation that a lot of the remarks that were made by the Chancellor Olaf Scholz about rearming um, Germany, um, spending 100 billion and, and raising the defence spending by 4%, whether that is, is really going to happen. And likewise, whether Nord Stream 2, which has only been postponed, will actually resume at some point in some negotiated deal with the Russians. So um, that, I think, is part of the reason why Zelensky has has been so critical of Germany at this moment, is it does seem like this is a a crucial time to be pressurising Germany into into making sure that they don't um, go against the commitments that they've made since the invasion just over three weeks ago. So sorry, a rather rather long uh, discussion there, but um, hopefully hopefully, um, it helps contextualise some of this. Certainly. Natalia, I wondered if you had any thoughts about Zelensky's speech to the Bundestag as well. Well, yes, obviously, we have seen um, Zelensky, who's a professional comedian and used to be quite a popular performer, both in Russia and Ukraine. We have seen him uh, in the past couple of weeks pulling off um, an impressive performance in the best sense of the word as the leader of the nation who was able both to tap into the emotional toll that the conflict is taking on on his people um, as well as try and uh, convey the message to the West that what they have been doing is not enough. Also, I think it's important to say that Zelensky in recent days has shown that um, his government is quite clear about the limitations of the Western aid and he realizes, for example, that NATO and NATO membership is not on the table. This is something that Ukraine has been seeking for a very long time. This is something that Russia has described as one of the reasons for the invasion. So it looks like he is now in this mode where um, he wants to tell the world with all possible details and human examples of the devastation that Russia has brought to his country. But also it looks that he appears to be rather resigned as to as to the extent of what the West can provide. Because in the past three weeks, we have seen certain red lines that um, NATO and the West are definitely not going to cross in relation to Russia. Um, just one other thing on, on, on Zelensky. I think there's going to be some very interesting questions emerging in the coming days and, and weeks, which is the extent to which he has been negotiating with the Russians. There's already been talk of a peace deal that is being negotiated and some of the points of that peace deal are now being openly discussed. And he, very interesting, has made public that he does not believe that, or he actually said, I think, that Ukraine will never join NATO. This may well have been part of to show willing to the Russians that that they are willing to make certain concessions. Now, in many ways, Zelensky has been a a, a martyr for, for Western values and Western ideas of liberty. 
But we must remember that his country is being pulverised and he is going to have to face some very, very difficult decisions um, longer term about his relationship with Russia in order to sign some sort of peace deal. We may well be in the uncomfortable situation where he is willing to sign an agreement with Russia that does give away the independent states of Luhansk um, and Donetsk that does agree that Ukraine will not join NATO and uh, is is also willing to to no longer try and uh, contest Crimea. If that is the case, then this is very uncomfortable for for those of us, of course, who would like to to, to, to think that it is possible for an absolute defeat of, of Russia. But it may well be that the West decides that it is not a risk worth taking when there is such a, um, a possibility of escalation and possibly even a, a nuclear conflict of some kind. So this is going to be, you know, Zelensky in many ways has been, as I say, seen as a figurehead for values of freedom, which we, we, we cherish in the West. But it may well be that, that in a few days time or a few weeks time, we'll be questioning certain decisions that he makes, um, that he will no longer be perhaps the same hero, perhaps as, 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 as some have um, have obviously been been championing uncontested for, for 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 several weeks now, and of course one of the reasons just just one final point one of the reasons why he may well want to agree uh, some sort of peace deal with with Russia despite how successfully they have, have have battered away the Russian army is the risk of a civil war. This is not something that we've really been discussing very much in recreation to Ukraine, but Dr. Mike Martin, who is in the War Studies Department at KCL, has commented on the possibility of there being a civil war um, longer term. The longer this conflict goes on, the, the leadership of Zelensky may be questioned, particularly by those who don't want to see any sort of a- agreement with the Russians. And... Um, all of the ingredients for a civil war are, may well be present when you've got highly armed militias and a highly armed population. And so just something to be aware of that, that it is not, whilst this is being framed as an all out victory, either the Ukraine wins all out or Russia wins all out. I think we're going to see that narrative shift in the coming days. And it'll be very interesting to see how Zelensky as a figure is seen in the West and in the East in the context of that. If I could just jump in quickly, Sophie. Go for it. I think Francis made a very good point about uh, potential uh, painful compromises that Zelensky may have to take. And uh, this is something that he has faced throughout his presidency. We may remember that back in 2019, when his um, aid um, launched talks with the Russian Kremlin advisor, they initially made quite a bit of progress. But at some point, there was a leak in the Ukrainian media saying that uh, Zelensky's aide has promised um, pretty much an um, unlimited autonomy for Eastern Ukraine. And that leak caused quite a bit of stir in Ukrainian society. And this is when talks between Russia and Ukraine essentially stalled and they were never fully restored. So that is, as, as Francis has pointed out, that is one of the biggest uh, risks we, we have right now. And... Uh, might be worth mentioning that uh, Mikhailo Podolyak, another advisor of Zelensky who um, leads the peace talks with Russia, he recently mentioned that Ukraine is committed to peace talks, they are willing to talk to Russians, they are seeking a compromise. But the biggest thing that is standing in the way for any substantial and quick progress is the fact that Russia and Ukraine are two fundamentally different states. That's the fact that all major decisions in Russia is taken by one man. 
and it pretty much comes down to the fact what he um, decides is the right thing to do at right at the same time. While Ukraine obviously is a democratic country and a very complex society, so there are things that Zelensky negotiators may like to or may uh, feel inclined to take up on in terms of uh, Russian offers. But some of those things are complete no-starters for Ukrainian society, and they're very keenly aware of those limitations. Thanks, Natalia. Now, you were talking there about the difference between the stark differences between Russian and Ukrainian society, and I think that moves us quite neatly onto your own experience over the last three, four weeks. Now, I know you were in Russia as the invasion broke out. You've since left. Can you give us a sense of what life was like before you left in Russia? Well, things have, uh, tensions have already been building in Russia, and we know that um, even before the invasion, uh, Vladimir Putin presided over an increasingly autocratic regime. At the same time, prior to the invasion, Russia was a country that still had remnants of free press where you could still come out and protest. Obviously, the cost uh, for those protests has been um, increasing from year to year, but there were some remnants of uh, a democratic state. Now, what, what happened in, the, uh, in just a few days after the invasion, we saw uh, Russia moving to a full-blown totalitarian society. We saw things that were impossible to imagine just a couple of years ago, including Russia's major news radio station, Echa Moskvi, which is the most popular radio station in Moscow, in the Russian capital, taken off air. This is something that hasn't happened in 32 years. Last time the Techo Moskvi, which is a legendary radio station, was taken off air was in 1991, when a group of KGB officials and security officials tried to topple President Mikhail Gorbachev. We also saw Russia's only independent channel, essentially uh, suspend its operation with its employees fleeing the country. And um, whatever a remnants of um, freedom of speech, freedom of expressions we had left in Russia before February the 24th, all of those pockets of freedom ended up evaporating in a matter of days. In a matter of a week, I would say, before the invasion, because uh, what we saw on the first Friday after the invasion is um, Russian parliament adopt a bill that essentially introduces war censorship and that promises to go after anyone who would do as little as call Russia's war in Ukraine a war. This is literally a, a word that's, um, that's banned in Russia right now. And we, we were talking about the fact that the word war is banned. Now, we've spoken in, on the podcast over the last few days about the significance of the protest of Marina of Yanukova, the journalist who appeared on Channel One with the placard saying very obviously and to the point, no war, using that banned word. Hmm. I'd be really interested to get your take as a Russian journalist, as someone who was in Russia. How significant was that protest, seeing that protest for you? And you must have had a real sense of exactly the risk that she was taking there. Sure. I think it's important to say that she has been working for state television for over 20 years. She was not one of those people who 
packed up and fled the country in, in a matter of days because they were working for television channels critical of the Kremlin, because they were working for critical media. Now, those people have been under pressure for years. They have faced harassment. They have faced death threats. They have been uh, slapped with a discriminatory uh, foreign agent law. So for those people, the start of the war and the prospect of that war censorship law meant that time was essentially a ticking for when they would be arrested. So um, that's why we saw essentially every single Russian independent media outlet evacuate and move abroad in the first days since the invasion. Now, Marina Avsyanikova is quite a special case. It's quite a different case. She has been working for state TV, as I've said, since the late 90s. She was a trusted employee. She was not a random protester who ran onto the set of uh, a nightly news show. She has been a producer at that news program for several years. She was someone... Um, whose presence on the set would not alarm any of the guards who were around. Obviously, it was one of the most daring acts of protest we saw when she took that, when she unfolded that banner and stood behind the anchor for about five seconds before um, before that image was taken off air and before viewers were shown archive footage. She was fined under a law about unsanctioned protest. So um, her ordeal probably is not over yet. Um, she spent about 14 hours at the police station. Obviously, the biggest threat for her is the new war censorship law because her very um, the very act of being on air and showing a banner that talked about civilian casualties and talked about lies about the war could make her the perfect target for the new law that um, essentially restricts any independent reporting. And obviously, it's quite quite important to say that independent journalists like the Echo Moskva station of the Dorsh television channel, they have always been viewed with mistrust in uh, Russian authorities. And in a way, the fact that they had to leave, I would say it would be something expected the kremlin would expect that but the fact that someone from inside the system someone from inside state television that has been manufacturing this propaganda for years that this person turned against her kremlin masters it's quite astonishing because people who manufacture the state propaganda um, they stay in those jobs for years they have enviable position good pay social security and a lot of those people have been saying for years that the only reason why they stay in their jobs is because they can afford um, a lifestyle that working for a small independent publication would never um it, it would they, they could never emulate that lifestyle so obviously when marina went on air she she risked her career she risked her well-being and again she potentially risked her freedom uh, because she could still be charged under this new law and we know that the investigation is open we don't know if she has been charged yet that hasn't been announced but there's a very tangible risk of that and and just to just to jump in on that i think her bravery shows something that is very important for us to remember which is that there are many brave dissidents in russia and that presents a problem for russia and an opportunity as well as a challenge for for the west i think uh, just to speak to, to Natalia's point, Russia's young and educated demographic have already, many of them have already long lost 
their sort of faith in in the in Putin's project. And a really striking fact is that some two hundred thousand have left Russia. We had a very um, interesting piece by Dr. Jade McGlynn of Oxford University in the paper a, a couple of days ago, where she points out that this is not going to be sustainable long term for Russia when you've got an autarctic system that requires the young, the educated to recreate the services and the goods and the equipment that will no longer be available to Russia with Western sanctions. You cannot afford to lose these people. And uh, it may well be that, that, that we are seeing or will see a return to something closer to the Soviet Union in the sense that it kept people in as well as keeping certain people out. The reason, though, that I think this could be a challenge for the West as well as an opportunity, and I'll be interested to hear Natalia's take on this, is that when you look at countries that have eventually, after years, decades of oppression, have finally had a spark of freedom and, and, and have, have been liberated from that tyranny and become democracies, one of the requirements for that has been for there to be large percentages of the population, particularly perhaps an educated middle class or an intelligentsia, who are there, who are ready to assume control when uh, the dictators flee or are, or are overthrown. A good example of that would be the former Czechoslovakia. When the Soviet Union collapsed, you had Václav Havel and you had those who had once been t- um, terrorised by the Soviets. Because they had not been able to leave the country, they were there and were ready to assume control very, very quickly. And of course, now um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia are both democracies. But if all of these people are leaving... What is the hope long term that there will actually be a large enough and powerful enough contingency within Russia that believe in the kind of values that we would like to see sparked in Russia? What is the chance of of, of there actually um, being a sort of a spring against uh, against Putin and something resembling democracy? Is there much of a chance if they've all all left? Yeah, Francis, it's a very good point. Obviously, a lot of people who have left, they have been disillusioned with Putin Mm. for years. A lot of them have spent years protesting. And this time they saw that they had enough, that all of the protests were futile. And they were just just trying to start their life from scratch, whether it's um, Istanbul or Georgia. But I wouldn't say, I mean, it's easy to say that everyone is leaving. I know that... It's easier to jump at those conclusions when you talk to your friends and when you realize how many friends that, for example, I have who have left or are leaving. But there are lots of people who are staying behind, whose jobs and whose skills are not transferable. Most of the people who uh, fled in recent days work in arts, they work in, in, in IT, they work in industries where it's easy to pretty much pack up and go and, and find another location to live. But a lot of people are staying put. A lot of the intelligentsia are staying put. And we remember it well from from Russia, from the Soviet Union in the 30s, before the war, where parts of intelligentsia were purged. We also remember it from, from, from the 60s, from, the, um, from how Russia's creative classes finally got a, a breath of fresh air after the death of Stalin. And that generation essentially helped to bring about perestroika that ended in the fall of the Soviet Union. So those people are there. They obviously feel helpless. They feel that the Kremlin is not listening to them, that 
it doesn't care about what they think, but those people are there. And I think it also depends on what happens in the diaspora, what happens to the Russians who leave, whether they sort of disappear on the streets of Istanbul or Tbilisi and uh, try to integrate in those societies and leave Russia behind, or whether they try and support Russians staying in Russia, whether they will try to build a movement abroad that could uh, help and sustain uh, Putin opponents in Russia, which, again, could be very difficult. Also, um, partly due to Western sanctions, which have greatly restricted any financial operations between Russia and the outside world. Also, it looks like it's going to be very difficult for anyone who stays behind in Russia to to find any forms of cooperation anyone with anyone from the West. Um, Vladimir Putin made quite a speech yesterday where he referred to those who opposed the war as, uh, quote, traitors and scum. And he essentially signaled that Russia would be better off without those who are leaving or who are opposing the war. And that speech has been largely seen as a um, as the green light for Russian security services to go after those dissidents who are still in the country. And it, it remains to be um, seen, uh, you know, what is what is going to be left of the Russian opposition um, in Russia after so many people have, have fled or have been jailed. Do, do you think, I mean, what, what's your view of those commentators and historians who say that Russia is not a country historically and perhaps even today predisposed towards liberty? I, I remember reading a very interesting piece by Christian Schneider in Der Spiegel a few years ago, and he says, you know, that, 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 that liberalism is not possible in Russia, the people won't allow it. It seems very strong, very strong words indeed. Um, and he talks just about how deeply ingrained um, this sort of strain of anti-liberalism is in is in Russia. Do you think that's that's justified, or do you think there is there is hope for for Russia to to fall back into the Western fold one day under the right sort of leadership? Hmm. I think it's a giant generalization, and I, as a Russian, I personally find it offensive when people say. Um, oh, Russians um, can never enjoy a liberal democracy. Or to quote a story in some American magazine a couple of years back, uh, quote, corruption is in Russia's DNA. Um, I find those comments deeply offensive. They also come from people often who have very little idea of the way Russia has been developing, how our society ended up where it is now. Obviously, Russia today is very different from what it was 10 years ago. When um, then-President Dmitry Medvedev was touring the United States, hanging out with um, Steve Jobs at the Apple headquarters and sharing burgers with Barack Obama. This is the same country in the sense that people who were running Russia, they are still in the government. The the only difference there is right now is that those people running the government have been marginalized. They are still around. Obviously, what happened with the annexation of Crimea in 2014 was a big turning point that has emboldened Putin to be more aggressive, to promote a more conservative agenda. But what we have seen, what what, what change in Russian policy we have seen in recent years, all comes down from the Kremlin. It's not about what people feel on the ground. I think it's very important to look at opinion polls and to see how 
results vary from one age group to another. For example, if you look at any opinion polls about the value of uh, human rights, freedom, respect for LGBTQ, when you look at those opinion polls, you see that the answers differ radically from one age group to another. You see that Russians under 25, Russians under 35, have quite a different view from what um, their parents or their grandparents' generations are. We have seen over, over, over the years that Russia's younger generations are more open to the West and they um, have been even more open and receptive to the West in recent years, despite all of the anti-Western rhetorics from, that we have seen from state TV. So all of the talk about conservative values, it's, it is a completely artificial subject that is being espoused by Vladimir Putin's generations, by those men in their late 60s, early 70s, who um, obviously are still reeling from the trauma of the fall of the Soviet Union. And I very much sympathize with that trauma. But it doesn't reflect where society is going. You know, just one, one, one uh, tiny example. There was a discussion a couple of years ago about abortions in Russia. And the Russian Orthodox Church, which obviously has a very keen um, sense of where the Kremlin thinking is going, has decided to launch a campaign to take abortions off the um, state-paid medical insurance plan. Because right now, if you want to have an abortion, you can have it for free as part of your state medical insurance. Now, a couple of years ago, the Russian, uh, Russian Orthodox Church was lobbying for abortions to be removed from that plan obviously explaining it by their own values and um, i remember doing a couple of stories um, on that at the time talking to people looking at opinion polls looking at statistics about abortions about how people viewed family how how people viewed monogamy and things like that and um, the reality on the ground was very very different from from the conservative values that are being um, publicly espoused. It's just there there's a great disconnect between what is happening on the ground and between the way Putin, a man who grew up and who came of age in the in the Soviet Union, would like it to be. Mm. If we it's, it's if we assume Russia will always be this anti-Western militaristic autocracy then that's the only way that conflict with her really is inevitable. Um, I think, as you say, um, we, we must remember that there are many dissidents and those who, who within Russia are, are challenging what, what, what the, the official line. And we've spe- you, you, you allude to the end of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've spoken before on this podcast about, um, in many ways, one of the, the major factors that was that contributed to that w- was not about the declining military strength of, of or economic strength of, of Russia, although of course that played into it. It was that the values of the leadership themselves changed. You've got the Gorbachevs, you've got Perestroika, and those around him, and that when the values of them changed, and they were no longer willing to send in the tanks into those areas that were resisting, they had the military strength to do so, um, but they no longer had the will to do so. And I think there's a lesson there: is that we have to, like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, found with Gorbachev somebody that they could do business with. We're going to long term have to find similar people who we can do business with in Russia. And and I think we don't yet know who that pers- who those people are. It's not clear because Putin is so all powerful, but that's going to be the challenge for, for Western intelligence and for um, and for Western political leaders moving forward. 
But again, if I could jump in here, um, I, I see where you're coming from, Francis, but obviously whoever Russia's next leader is and whoever Russia's new opposition leader is to challenge Putin, this is something that obviously has to come from, from Russia and from Russians. We have plenty of politically active people who uh, would have been fit for the role if they had been given the floor, if any of them had got a one minute of airtime on state television, since we have spoken about state television, uh, we still have Alexei Navalny, who has been behind bars for a year. And I'm sure that when there is a genuine demand for a change of leadership, People like that will emerge. They are around, and it's just it, it's a matter of time before before they do. Do, do you ever do you ever think Navalny will be president of Russia? That's a very big question. I mean, it depends on depends on when he is in a position to seek that office. Um, he definitely has um, a very strong following. Um, his um, daring return to Russia a year ago was definitely something that inspired a lot of people, even those who were not particularly supportive of him. But again, it depends on when we are in that situation. You know, going back to Ukraine, there was a moment in Ukraine at the end of the 2014 revolution when Yulia Tymoshenko, a former prime minister, has been finally released from jail. And her release um, has been one of the issues that the um, Ukrainian pro-European um, revolution has been campaigning for. So when Yulia Tymoshenko was finally released, uh, she was taken to um, to Kiev's Independence Square to a very warm, warm uh, reception of the protesters. And she did run for president a couple of months later, uh, but she lost because in a way, a time has come for other people and she was already a politician from another era. So again, let's, let's see... Let's see what what happens when Navalny is released, when it happens, uh, you know, whether it happens in two months from now or 10 years from now. Thanks, Natalia. I just wanted to come in here. I know we've been discussing the possibility for, obviously, fresh leadership in Russia. But if we bring it back to Putin and the situation that he's in, we've got a piece in the paper today discussing what Putin's future could look like, how long it could be, whether he could be in jail as a war criminal within a matter of years. I want to kind of ask you the question, how significant it is that Joe Biden called Putin a war criminal last night and what you see as happening over the next, the coming kind of months and years. Are we just dealing in rhetoric now or do you think we will see justice, I guess? Mm. Well, clearly Joe Biden's um, description of Putin as a war criminal was taking as something very painful. Uh, in Moscow, we saw um, the foreign ministry spokeswoman and the Kremlin spokesman to comment on that, uh, describing that it was one of the red lines that uh, the US president has crossed. Russian officials has always been very careful and very sensitive around rhetoric, around different descriptions that world leaders give to each other. You might remember that Joe Biden, in, a, in an interview several months ago, was asked whether he thought Vladimir Putin was a killer. And um, his um, somewhat ambiguous response has um, sparked quite an outrage in the, in, the, in the Kremlin, because whatever happens, 
they would like to think that uh, Vladimir Putin is still considered a legitimate leader in the West and that he is and he deserves some respect. And calling him a war criminal is definitely a sign that there is no respect for him left uh, in Russia yet. Speaking about going forward, I think we're at the point right now where all bets are off. I know that there were so many military analysts who were predicting this invasion, who were mapping out the way it would pan out. But also very few people in Russia or Ukraine themselves could imagine that this thing would be possible, that this all-out war between two neighboring nations would be possible. And in the past three weeks, uh, we have seen incredibly, completely inconceivable things happening. Starting from the invasion, starting from Russia, getting most of its foreign currency reserves frozen abroad and not being able to access it. So right now, it's it's very hard to see how long the Putin regime will last. We're obviously see we're seeing a lot of discontent around, starting from this state TV producer to a prima ballerina of the Bolshoi theater who fled Russia, chess players, football players, oligarchs. They have all spoken against the war and they have um, expressed their they have they have all said how how devastated they were and they were obviously all shocked by. Um, by Putin's decisions to invade Ukraine. And things have been developing quite fast. So I don't think there's anyone who can tell you right now how we're going to go and and how long the Putin regime will last. It's impossible to predict at this point. If I could just add something on the significance of President Biden calling uh, Putin a war criminal. It's going to be very difficult. There's, There's been some talk that... Uh, one or that one of the key Russian demands in any peace deal will be a big summit of some kind, which will involve the US president being there and other world leaders effectively shaking hands with Vladimir Putin in order to to agree um, an end to the war. By calling Putin a war criminal, I would argue that that now becomes almost an impossibility. Um, you would are incredibly unlikely to have a U.S. president willing to shake hands with somebody who is openly, if you ever were, but, but particularly um, somebody who you've called a criminal, a war criminal um, in the past. So I think this is may well be a deliberate foreign policy manoeuvre on the half of the Americans to say that that is not going to happen if that is one of the demands on the table. Natalia alluded to the remarks that Putin made in a speech yesterday on television. I was just very, very struck um, and concerned by the language that he was using, which speaks to this idea that he's a war criminal. I mean, it's straight out of the 1930s. He calls for the, quote, self-purification of his country. Quote, true patriots from scum and traitors will simply spit them out like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths. Um, He said the West is using a fifth column of traitorous Russians to create civil unrest. This is not something uh, that an international statesman um, would ever be expected to say in the modern era. And I think it makes it increasingly unlikely that there will be any way back for him, whether it is a demand from the Russians in order for there to be any peace deal or not. So I think it is very significant this moment, even if it's not necessarily in the ways that we necessarily think. Thank you both. Extremely interesting. I wondered if you guys had any final thoughts on our discussions today and possibly, yeah, the future for Russia as we've been speaking about. As I've said, I think we're in a 
um, in a completely uncharted territory right now, uh, both in what's happening in Russia and what's happening in Ukraine. In a way, what we are seeing in Ukraine is a more stable and predictable dynamic. That country is defending itself against an invasion. They have shown that they were they were able to contain a much larger army and uh, still hold on to to, to, to to most of the country and obviously foil uh, the Kremlin's plan for a lightning invasion. While, and I wouldn't say that things are in Ukraine are going according to the plan, but obviously what we're seeing in Russia is completely unprecedented and uh, clearly took Vladimir Putin by surprise as well. I mean, the uh, devastating Western sanctions that Russia have been uh, slapped with. This is something that we haven't seen uh, since Iran or North Korea. In some ways, the sanctions that have been announced are even worse. And um, I mean, it's only been three weeks, but the processes that have been launched in terms of uh, multinational companies pulling out of Russia, Western countries, not just Western, but pretty much all of the world turning its back on Russia, it is spelling an economic disaster for the country that no one could predict, including Vladimir Putin, who obviously hoped for a large rainy day fund to soften the blow of any sanctions um, if they were to be imposed. So we obviously witnessing a very unpredictable time, both in Ukraine and Russia. And as we can see, the longer the war takes, the more unhinged the Russian leadership becomes and um, the more un- un- unstable it is because what else can they do if their economy is falling apart? I mean, how long can they sustain this war if they would be running out of money before too long? My final thought would just be alluding to what I was saying earlier about some future peace deal. In the West and in Russia, this has become a conflict of absolutes, a seeking of absolute victory over um, the enemy. At least that's the the, the rhetoric both that Zelensky and uh, Vladimir Putin and indeed the West have, 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 um, have been saying ever since the invasion. But as I was saying... This is not necessarily going to be the end result with a, a U- Ukrainian defeating the Russian army who have to are forced to retreat and um, Zelensky starts to rebuild and there's a great sort of moment of Western triumph. I mean, I think we all are, are, are hoping for that. But I, I, as I say, that may not be something that Zelensky actually um, is able to achieve and it may be that he will receive more, as, as, as the days go on, more Western pressure to sign some sort of peace deal. But I think there are also major concerns if that is the case, because if, as is being speculated, and indeed, as I've already quoted Zelensky's remarks, if Ukraine is not to um, become part of uh, NATO and it's willing to to remove that clause from its constitution, a desire to join NATO, if it is seriously going to give um, Russia potentially uh, Lehensk and, and, and Donetsk and, uh, and also um, uh, the Black Sea um, ports around Crimea, then how is this in any way really a, a victory for for Western values and for Ukraine? These are essentially things that, that at the beginning, before the invasion, were being very, very strongly um, fought against from within Ukraine. And um, it would be a very, very uncomfortable situation if that indeed is what is agreed. It may well be the cost of peace. And of course, you know, there are still very, very serious threats of, of nuclear escalation, both within Ukraine and, and within uh, the Western world more broadly. Um, um, but I would just add that this is something that really um, 
we are going to have to grapple with, that we are fighting this war in an ideological um, prism that, that really seeks a definitive answer that is either a victory for one side or the other. And and I'm not sure that well, it's actually ultimately going to be the result of this. But my goodness, what risks there will be if Putin is able to walk away from this by getting what he was initially asking for in the first place. I think that'll be very, very dangerous indeed. And we may well see that that emboldens him in, in the vision that he laid out in terms of rebuilding some element of the Soviet Union in, in former NATO states. I think the West cannot afford for that to to happen. And so there has to be some agreement, if an agreement is reached, where um, it is clear to the world that Putin has in some way lost. But I don't know what that piece will look like. Regular listeners to this podcast will be used to hearing The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dom Nichols, give his insight into the latest news from Ukraine. But today Dom was out of the studio, so he didn't join us for our main chat. He was in fact spending the day with Armed Forces Minister James Heapy. Luckily for us, the minister agreed for Dom to record their conversation for this podcast. And Dom started by asking why Britain is providing Skysabers, a type of missile defence system, to Poland, but not Ukraine. Well, I think that there are some of our allies uh, around the Ukrainian border that are exposing themselves to quite a lot of risk by um, helping to facilitate the huge amounts of military aid that's flowing into Ukraine at the moment. And... I think it's right that when Poland puts itself out there, not as a business, this isn't being done through NATO. This is Poland being willing to use its air bases for huge amounts of, of military aid. And it's good, I think, that the UK is able to reassure the Poles that we will put some really meaningful, high-capability air defence in just give them a bit of reassurance that their airspace is protected. And we saw the Rent-A-Mig affair last week, and that was deemed to get too close to some sort of escalatory red line. Do you think Skysaber in Ukraine might be also over that red line? Is that a reason why we've not uh, considered sending that? Well, I, I think it's more to the training burden, frankly. There is you know, the sweet spot that we've been going for is stuff that has maximum lethality, broadest possible utility, but the smallest possible training burden. Because what there isn't really the time for is to bring people out and to spend six months training them up on a highly kind of sophisticated system. By the time we've done that, you know, it could all be over. I think, you know, the ability to donate Patriot or Skysaber or any other kind of advanced air defence system has to be balanced against the reality that, you know, once it's donated, it needs to be used and it might not be in service quickly enough to make a difference. So Ben Wallace said last night that we are sending Starstreak uh, to Ukraine. So what will that do for the U- Ukrainian forces? Well, I think a lot. Uh, you know, there is the Stingers already, and Stinger is, you know, entry-level air defence, and yet it has already been useful enough in daytime operations to deter the Russians from operating freely during daylight. Uh, that's an extraordinary thing. When you consider the numerical supremacy of the Russian air force, the fact that to take Ukrainian numbers, they've shot down about 44 jets and 50 helicopters, and that that has already had the impact of making the Russians do their business differently. If we can provide the Ukrainians with a nighttime capability, it doesn't take much before the Russian Air Force calculus has to change again. So HVM is a real improvement on, on Stinger, much more effective, harder to use. So there's a training burden that we're having to work through, but that is... 
Um, it's not a, it's not a training burn that's going to take people away for months and months. It's days to to do. But once it is in the hands of people who know how to use it, it is highly lethal, highly effective, and crucially, the new launch systems are capable of operating at night, and that will cause the Russians to have to think again about how they're operating over Ukraine. I don't mean to use the term in a pejorative fashion, but is this is this a no-fly zone then on the cheap for for good reasons on the cheap training burden and 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 you know, financial cost? So I mean I don't so I don't think it's anything to do with financial cost. I mean, gosh, look at the, the the scale of the donations that people around the world are willing to make. I mean, I think money's not the issue here. I think if you look at what the other options could be, so you could do a no-fly zone that is policed by NATO jets. But to do that, it's not just the obvious possibility of NATO jets coming into direct combat with Russian jets. It's also the reality that the airspace above Ukraine is heavily contested from Russian ground-based air defence, a lot of which is based in Belarus and Russia. So are we actually saying we're going to bomb installations in Belarus and Russia in order to achieve a no-fly zone over Ukraine? And that's a, that's a big escalatory step. Secondly, you know, there are undoubtedly more sophisticated GBAD systems that you could provide, but with a training burden that effectively renders them inconsequential because it takes so long to make them effective, unless you're going to send NATO troops in to operate them. But again, that brings with it the whole risk of escalation. So I think this is the version of a no-fly zone that is most easily achieved. And that means that you've got highly capable weapon systems, the best that we can offer where the training burden is realistic and we're able to get them into country really quickly so the effect is had quickly because every day counts in this situation the longer this goes on the more that the russians keep whacking artillery into um into the cities and i think that brings me to the final point which is i think you know a a lot of a lot of the noise about a no-fly zone assumes that all of the devastation and destruction we're seeing on our tv screens or reading about in your paper is the consequence of airstrikes and air raids. It's not, I mean, a lot of it is the consequence of artillery firing. And so the next bit of this, once the no-fly zone, if you like, is created through a really prickly problem set for the Russians from ground-based air defense, the next part of the equation is how do you help the Ukrainians to get after the Russian artillery groups that are over the hill? And that's the sort of challenge that we're working through at the moment. Now, Vladimir Putin specifically, and also the, the Russian defence environment you talks about nuclear weapons a lot much more so than we talk about them in in the west so do you think that underlines their value and do, do you think it, it it puts to bed for us here in the uk but in the west more broadly puts to bed the the nuclear disarmament debate for good well i sincerely hope so i mean i think cnd have been noticeably quiet uh in the last uh, few weeks because all of their kind of narrative around who's actually going to use them has been you know, clearly proven to be not. There's genuine threat that they will be used. Um, I, I still find it extraordinary that there are a whole bunch of, um, of politicians, you know, people in parliament who are you know, proudly card-carrying members of, of CND. Um, you know, when you look at what CND stands for, it's, 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 an, it's an openly anti-NATO um, organisation because of NATO's nuclear policy. Indeed, my opponent um, from the Liberal Democrats in my seat in Somerset is you know, proudly boasts on her register of interests as a county councillor in Somerset that she's a member of CND. I just think it's I think it's ridiculous at a time like this, reckless 
to be a member of and to support organisations like that when our national security is so clearly under threat from somebody who very reasonably could use those weapons. So I think in mainstream political opinion, there is complete consensus. Out on the extremes, there are still people who just don't get it and their ideology gets in the way of any sense of duty to national security. Um, Today... Putin's been talking about fifth columnists, traitors, slaves. I mean, really inflammatory, quite wild language. How concerned are you that he's no longer a rational actor? Well, um, I, I, I'm pretty concerned. I, I don't. I mean, I, I think that there's a you know there's a language that he's been using all the way back to the week before the invasion. Frankly, that was that was fanatical, and with that fanaticism, I think there's a there's a real danger. I think he is trying very, very hard to own a narrative within Russia that is far more contested than he ever thought that it would be. Um, and that's testament to the kind of inquisitiveness of the Russian people. That they're just, you know, There's enough doubt in there. There's enough of the protest to just make them want to ask the question, you know, find out what, you know, search for the truth. Um, but the more that Putin feels like the Russian people are asking the difficult questions, the more that I think he feels he's got to generate a kind of an existential challenge that they can all rally behind and sort of their patriotism takes over from their inquisitiveness. So hugely dangerous on a number of levels, hugely dangerous because perhaps it suggests there's a desperation that leads him towards a course of action that we would consider very, very dangerous indeed. And there's a danger that he does this to try and embolden and rally the Russian people to, 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 to put the Russian state in a position where it supports him no matter what the cost. And at the moment, the cost to Russia is extraordinarily high. Thousands of their young men are dying needlessly because of the hubris of Putin and those that surround him. And I think the more that we can help the Russian people to see beyond Putin and his lies and the, sort of the rhetoric that he's using that is designed to polarise... Um, the better. The priority for us all has to be to try and find a peace settlement because this is just grim and it's, in, it's heading in a dangerous direction. James E.P., thank you very much. Thank you. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest, on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter... Alice Herring. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.